0: Well, welcome to faith. Welcome to our message series on prayer. Uh, every July, our church focuses uh, our congregation on prayer and the calling to prayer, not just because it is a important value for the ministry of faith, but because it is a supreme value that God uh, has called us to in his word. Uh, we find that Not only does God speak to us through his word and that he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit, but God wants a relationship with his people. He delights in a relationship with you and I as his children. And so we we encourage that. It is uh, how we grow in our experience and love of God. It's how we find joy in the answered prayers, but it's also how God moves his kingdom forward. Do I have an echo in this house? Or is that just me up here? Is it okay? All right. So this is uh, prayer is uh, how God moves His and advances His kingdom forward. But many devoted and sincere believers can relate to this statement. What good does prayer do? What does it? What good does it do to pray? This was Paul Miller's daughter's, uh, her his teenage daughter Ashley. Uh, who tearfully blurted out to him when he suggested that they stop and pray on a camping trip when her contact lens fell out and was somewhere displayed on the forest floor. Uh, It seemed so ridiculous uh, to ask God to pray for such. Behind that eruption, however, was her own experience of praying for her mentally disabled sister, Uh, Kim, over many years and not really sensing that God was answering her own personal prayers. Paul said that his daughter's statement reflects the way many believers think about prayer, which led him to write the book, A Praying Life, connecting with God in a distracting world, which I highly recommend. Uh, Paul Miller, uh, he has taught hundreds of seminars on prayers, uh, over thousands of people. He started to do interviews, uh, surveys, uh, trying to gather information on the nature of people's prayer lives, and and these were surveys with what would be considered mature believers in churches, probably similar to ours. Uh, and they listed some of the frustrations that they experienced in prayer, and here are some of them. How do you concentrate? My mind floats. Is that praying? Do I need to say things in the right order? My day's to-do list pops up. Maybe you experienced some of those. He also said, what, uh, he asked the question, what does good praying look like? Uh, and many just felt overwhelmed. Uh, so much to pray for. Uh, And the dominant feeling that people had in their prayer lives was one of guilt. They just felt guilty. Uh, Can I pray for what I want? How do I know if it's your will? How do you interface with God? It's like I have a conversation, but I don't hear a voice. It's like I'm talking to myself. He knows it already. Why bore God? It sounds like nagging. It feels like a one-way conversation. I'm doing all the talking. And uh, he just talked also about, in our American culture, how difficult it is uh, to concentrate and to be still uh, and to have focus, uh, and, and particularly in a culture of entertainment uh, and also devices. <laughs> and he talks about the negative feelings that are often in prayer. Uh, I don't do it often enough. It feels like a chore. I feel like a failure. It feels futile. Prayers aren't answered. He's not listening to me. Is he there? Now, maybe that's just the people that he surveyed, (laughs) and none of you experience any of those things. But this is what he learned as he reviewed and took surveys of thousands of people is that this is more the norm. And he said that 90% of what would be considered mature believers do not have what he would call a praying life, a praying life. Uh, And he asked the same people to express their feelings about the doctrine of atonement or of God's forgiveness and justification and adoption and sonship and, uh, and people would say stuff like, I have an intimate relationship with the Father. I have complete access to God as my Father. And he said, these people warmly expressed their convictions, but on the inside, this is what he said, there is little to no functional conversation with their Heavenly Father. He said, this is no small problem. And then he went on to talk about how Thirty to forty years ago, uh, the Christian culture could sustain a family. Uh, But he said today, uh, there is just significant mass exodus of youth from the faith community. Uh, And He said this kind of Christianity cannot sustain the onslaught of the post-Christian, post-modern world. He says, we have to develop a praying life. This is a tinderbox for cynicism. You simply have to add struggles or temptations to this. If Christianity isn't working at the heart level, it can't sustain the onslaughts of this culture. And I think that's true. And then he said, uh, when said, uh, when his daughter Ashley said, prayer doesn't do any good, he realized that her heart was shutting down and he sensed that he was losing his daughter spiritually. Maybe many of you in this, play, in this house can relate to that in your own children's lives. In that crisis moment, Paul said he prayed a quick prayer and said, Lord, this would be a really good time to come through. <laughs> he says it was not a very sophisticated prayer, but right then... He, with his daughter Ashley, as they were bent over and looking down and staring down, they're sitting on this little leaf, was this little almost invisible contact lens. And God provided an encouragement to him and his daughter at that moment of desperation. God is a God who is very much about answering his children's prayers. And so the disciples in Jesus' day also struggled with having a praying life. But they watched Jesus pray, and they became very curious about his life and how they realized that Jesus' own personal life of prayer was really at the core of his own personal vitality. And we find two accounts in the Gospels uh, where Jesus gives... Uh, what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer, which really wasn't the Lord's Prayer, it was the disciples' prayer. It was his prayer to teach the disciples how to pray. And we find that in Luke 11, and here we find in Matthew 6, which is part of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where he contrasts teachings about ineffective praying or poor praying uh, with what praying should look like. Let's now consider Matthew 6, starting at verse 5, that we, as God's people, might grow in a praying life. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew 6 is located in this larger instruction or this teaching that he gave on the Sermon on the Mount about the blessings and the character of what it meant and what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, Here we find that Jesus emphasizes uh, the aspect of Christian righteousness, which is greater uh, than the righteousness of the teachers and the Pharisees uh, because it is not merely outward righteousness, but it's the righteousness of the heart. And then he talks about the contrast of Christian love which is broader because it includes the loving of one's enemies. And then he talks about Christian prayer, and he talks about how Christian prayer is deeper because it's sincere, it's thoughtful, and it's intensely relational than anything that could be found in the non-Christian world. The Lord's prayer, or the disciples' prayer, is given to us as a model of what genuine Christian prayer is like. It's a pattern, it's a form to use. We can use it both as a prayer, as it stands by itself, but also as a model for how we should pray. The Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, is not meant to be formulaic, uh, but to provide principles and guides and important characteristics to remember, not just to guide Christ's followers, but this prayer is meant to intrigue us. This prayer is meant to capture us, and to uh, astound us and to motivate us to pray, we've probably prayed it so many times that we lose the wonder of what we find in this prayer. The context of the Lord's Prayer is Jesus exposing the hypocritical praying of some. Such prayer is not the only uh, such prayer is not the only sin to avoid the vain repetition of meaningless, heartless, mechanical utterance, the mere resuscitation of words uh, that was also to be avoided. He said that such praying tended to be the practice of religious pagans. Now pagans, the word pagans in that day uh, were not anti-religious or atheists, but they believed in the deities of the earth. Uh, But their conception of such a deity was one that was not close, and it was not attentive, but was a far away deity, a distracted deity. And the way you got the attention of such a deity was by repetition. Like the story of Elijah and and Baal in 1 Kings 18, the battle of God and Baal that we find Elijah, uh, and he's calling them to this Display of let's see who the real God is, and he tells that he has this altar built, and and uh, he uh, he wants to see who's going to bring the fire down from heaven uh, on this altar, and so uh, they took a bull and and they prepared it, and they started to call in the name of their God Baal uh, from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us! They shouted, but there was no response. There was no answer, and they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them, shout louder, surely he is a god, perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling, maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with sword and spears as was their custom until the blood flow and midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response, there was no answer. No one paid attention. And then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came here and they repaired the altar of the Lord, uh, which was in ruins. And at the time of the sacrifice, he prays, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then fire came down and fell from heaven and burned up this sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil licked up the word. They had poured three um, layers of water over this sacrifice that had burned everything up. And the people saw it, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. And The point of that, and the point of what Jesus was saying, is that God is not distant, God is not distracted, and God is not deaf, but he is close, he is attentive, and he is listening. So don't go on babbling like the pagans using vain repetitions. Now, Jesus is not uh, prohibiting repetition, but he is condemning verbosity and empty words or lip service. Isaiah says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so whether it's the mindless use of a rosary or the mindless prayer ritual and Protestant worship where hearts are far from God and people are just going through the motions, Jesus is saying, this is ineffective. This is not the prayer to the God that is, exists. And so Jesus forbids people praying any kind of prayer with the mouth without their minds and their hearts engaged. The God of the universe does not respond to such praying, and we're not to think of God in such a way. The praying of believers must be real, sincere, heart and mind engaging. But how are we to think about God? How are we to think about God? What thoughts and understandings and ideas should guide us and direct us when we pray to this God that exists? What Jesus reveals to us, he shows us how to address God in prayer, in this disciples' prayer. And specifically, he shows us how to address God as he is, that he is radically personal, that he is radically powerful, and that he's radically profound. He is radically personal. The first words about how to address God is, our Father. Our Father. Here Jesus contrasts the perspective of the God of the Pharisees who think God is impressed with their public displays or the God of the pagans who think God is impressed with their repetitions. Uh, Jesus reveals the true and living God is nothing like that, but he is our Father. Our Father. He is the personal God. He is a person. He is God is not just as personal as we are. He is the ultimate person. In the person of the Father, Jesus wants to emphasize that God is your loving Father. He is not, as one scholar said, an ogre who terrifies us with hideous cruelty, an abusive father, an absent, distant, distracted father. He is the ideal father who is madly in love with his children. Uh, This past uh, Thursday night uh, was uh, this meeting called Ignite Baltimore. I don't know if anyone has ever been to one of the Ignite Baltimore events. It happens three times a year. And uh, it's it's an event where 16 artists or technologists or thinkers and personalities, they get five minutes and 20 slides to spark a new conversation about culture and disciplines. And so one of those speakers was a man by the name of Joseph Woodley. And uh, he has written this book and the title of his talk was When the Prodigal Son Becomes a Father. When the Prodigal Son Becomes a Father. And in his book he talks about his failure to come to terms with the anger and the resentment he held towards his absentee father. And how he turned from his values, his faith in God, in the church, and went on to a course of self-destruction which resulted in a broken marriage, womanizing, and going to jail. But he said at that hopeless place in life, he found salvation. He found spiritual and psychological healing and deliverance and comfort through faith and learning that he had an eternal, loving Father who would always be there for him. And so Jesus opens. The way we are to address God is our Father. Prayer is not to be a means of public external promotion or is to be a place of personal eternal pleasure. It's not the babbling of meaningless words. It is the language of a child to his or her loving parent. And the preface of the Westminster Confession of Faith, short of catechism, which is one of our doctrinal pieces, it guides us in the preface, what is the preface of the Lord's Prayer to teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer is that our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father able and ready to help us, that we should pray with and for others. Uh, I remember going to uh, Turkey some years ago, about 10 years ago, actually it was. I was in uh, Izmir or Smyrna. And I remember waking up early, and there was this elderly man praying through the beads. Uh, and uh, in Islam, uh, devoted Muslims will pray through the 99 names of Allah. And I saw this happen. And I went to research, well, what are some of these names that are being prayed for? And some are the all benef- Beneficent the most merciful, the king, the sovereign, the most holy, the peace and blessing, the guarantor, the guardian, the preserver, the almighty, the self-sufficient, the powerful, the irresistible, the tremendous, the creator. And you know, most of those names are very valid characteristics for the God of the Bible. But it said that there is a the hundredth name that nobody knows. The Muslims teach that there's 99 names for God and that the hundredth name is hidden. It's a mysterious, with little reference to know exactly what that hundredth name is. The Hadith, a collection of sayings of the prophet Muhammad, uh, constitutes a major source of guidance for Muslims. It talks about this. Verily, there are 99 names of God, 100 minus one. He, who enumerates them, would get into paradise. But in Islam, There is no name for God as Father. That is absent. And there is something very significant when Jesus says, when you pray, pray, our Father, our Father, Jesus, the God of the Scriptures, wants his people to know that the very first image, the very first thought that we should have about God is a loving Father who longs and delights in his children coming to him The passage that we heard from uh, Luke 15 with the father just waiting for his repentant son to come home. It is not that he's waiting for him just to come into the door of the house. He is expectantly, he is waiting at the hill, watching for his repentant son. And he doesn't just wait for him to come to him. He runs to him and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. This is the image that God wants his people to have about the nature of God as Father. Scholar Jeremias insists that Abba is an address by Jesus to God in his prayers, expresses his heart relationship to God. He spoke to God as a child to his Father confidently and securely, and yet at the same time reverently and obediently. And he says, Abba expresses an identity an intimacy which is unknown in the Old Testament, an awareness of a relationship which cannot be broken. He says, at the heart of Jesus' mission to attack and destroy the forces of evil lies the sure knowledge of the Father as Abba, and from the treasures of that relationship, we have the power to face sin and evil. If you understand that God, the creator of the universe, is madly in love with you, you will have the power to face anything that the world will throw at you. The question that many ask is that since God knows that we will ask, uh, that he will already know what we're going to ask him, why do we even have to pray? I mean, he already knows it. And John Calvin answers this question well. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him, or of exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though it were reluctant, as he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom and a word that they may declare that from him alone they, they hope and expect both for themselves and for others all good things. What a great, what a great piece of theology, the, the idea of pouring your anxieties into the bosom of the Father. And Jesus affirms this. He says, when you go, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Uh, one scholar talks about this idea of going into the secret room and praying. Uh, in the temple, There, the temple, there's these side rooms that have the treasuries of the temple. And what this scholar believes is that Jesus is pointing to the fact that when you go to pray, you are going into the treasure house of God. And he is just waiting to bless you with abundance in his riches, not just like material things, and he does bless us materially, but to bless us with spiritual fruit, eternal things. And so we cry, Abba, Father. John Stott says he refreshes our soul, satisfies our hunger, quenches our thirst. We know we are no longer orphans, for the Father has adopted us, no longer prodigals, for we have been forgiven, no longer alienated, for we have come home. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, we come thinking that we have to have our stuff together. That we, You know, if we're going to be good Christians, we've got to pray a certain way. We've got to pray a certain amount of time. We've got to, you know, do a certain order of praying. And I know that a lot of times when you hear the encouragements to come out to pray, you know, you might just feel kind of like, well, I just, I'm just not that kind of a spiritual person, you know. Uh, And so you kind of look at prayer as more of a duty versus a blessing and like a treasure. (laughs) But Paul Miller, I love what he has to say in his book uh, about becoming like a little child. He says, Jesus wants us to be without pretense when we come to him in prayer. Instead, we often try to be something we aren't. The gospel is the welcoming heart of God. God cheers when we come to him with our wobbling on steady prayers. Jesus does not say, come to me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. No, Jesus opens his arms wide to his needy children and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come just as you are. The criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. And so, it's when we come to Jesus like that, when we come to the Father like that, he starts to work a work of healing in our hearts. Uh, he starts to like do things that bring peace into our anxious days. Uh, he starts to uncover our idols, where we place our success or we place the adulation of others or the fame and the glory of life or our careers and how we get anxious about so many things. He, he exposes those things and he says, I'm your, I'm your security, I'm your glory, I'm your honor, you can rest in me. Uh, some time ago, I, I remember going out to the track to walk and pray, this was like at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I was actually really, really tired. I didn't want to get up out of bed, but like a good soldier, I got up and I went out there and I was walking and praying and running, and uh, I had gone to sleep, or I went to bed late at night because of a project that I was working on, and and as I was walking or running around that track, just really exhausted and fatigued, uh, I felt like God spoke the scripture once, Psalm 127, verse 2 to my heart, which says, in vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. He grants sleep to those he loves. I <laughs> mean, it was like God was just purging me of my anxiety. And I started to feel like this great peace just overwhelmed me. And overcome me and I really felt tired and so I just decided I'm walking home (laughs) and I got to bed and I just fell asleep and I just had a great rest and I just love the words he grants sleep to those he loves he grants sleep to those he loves and so brothers and sisters God wants you to rest in him he wants to give you the, the rest of his love of sleep uh but before I move on to this next point, I want you to recognize that it's just not an individual, my father, but it's our father. We are part of a larger family. Our father is a corporate thing. You know, Jesus actually told his disciples that he has to go after other sheep who are not of this fold in John 10. I must bring them also so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. The God that we worship is a God who has a big family. Uh, There are many others, not of our fold, maybe our race or our histories, our class or whatever, but this is a God who has a huge family, an international family. And uh, in, in Leviticus 19 says, the alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What an radical, loving God that we have. His family is so large, and he wants to make sure that those who are foreigners and aliens in our midst realize that God's arms embrace them, and they're part of the family of God. And so Jesus tells us to pray our Father because we have a Father who loves us, who wants to bless us from the infinite treasures of his storerooms. But not only that, but that he's not only radically personal, but he's radically powerful. Jesus is not calling us to address God as our Father in heaven because he is far out there, but that God is not limited, but that he is an all-powerful God. He is not just a Father who is in, uh, in heaven, Not that he is far away, but that he is far powerful than any other force. He is the powerful father. He is not only good, but he is great. In other words, heaven does not so much denote the place of God's dwelling as the authority and the power at his command as the creator and ruler of all things. So Jesus combines fatherly love with heavenly power. God cannot be God if he is just love, but does not have the power to show it. Nor is God, God, if he's just powerful force without being the person of love. As the scripture says, God is love. And so Psalm 62 says, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. He is our father in heaven. He is a powerful, almighty God. He is a God that knows the beginning from the end. His timing is absolutely perfect in our lives. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you've been hearing about pastoral transition. We've talked about it a lot. I almost hear like every Sunday in this pulpit. And, and, uh, and I have to say, it's, it's hard. It's hard for me, you know. and for Maybe it's hard for some of you. Maybe it's a, it's a relief, you know. Um, but I would say that uh, this past couple weeks, it was an interesting time of seeing, watching God's power unfold in the movement of a pastoral transition, which has never happened here for 38 years. So, uh, two weeks ago, I had finally uh, submitted the letter that is actually out in the Outside uh, concerning the the end date of my service, and and that really came through counsel from the uh, pastoral or the transition task force, which encouraged a a kind of a clarity on this. And anyhow, after Steve already expressed that, but so I wrote this letter, and uh, and uh, and it was sent out first to the leaders, in a mass email, and I got that out, and I prayed through it, and. But within minutes of that letter going out, at the same time, Bill Bowling, who's the chair of the pastoral uh, uh, or the search committee, had called Adrian and said, the pastoral search committee has a communication to send out to the congregation. And, And that communication was that they had finalized that there's two particular candidates they feel are qualified to pastor this church and they're asking the congregation to pray. Now, that was news that has never been spoken for over a year. We never knew where things were totally. We just had a sense that, okay, there's been 30-plus meetings and probably hundreds of sermons and lots of things that have happened. But within minutes of my communication, Bill's communication happened. It was not coordinated. It was not engineered but I believe it was God carrying this body at a pretty tough season. And uh, I believe that God showed his power and that he is the God who is in love with his church, his bride. And Bill said Wednesday night here, relax, watch God work in our midst, enjoy the journey. They were words full of grace. And at the same time, the pastoral search committee has been praying and fasting. And I would encourage us to pray and fast with them during this time and to come out to the concert of prayer tonight. But the final thing is that this God is not only radically personal, radically powerful, but radically profound. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. A lot of times when we think of holiness, we think of a God who is like holy other, and certainly God is, there's no one like him. Uh, he's transcendent, and that certainly expresses that. He is absolute moral perfection. That is all true, but the holiness of God is also holy in love, that he has a holy people in Deuteronomy, we find, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. What we find is that this God is a God high and lifted up, but he is a God who is called a holy people to himself. It is about a holy love, a holy relationship. How do we know that this God is serious about loving his people, about loving you, and all of your sin, and all of your rebellion. Uh, You might be in this place right now, and you're thinking about the the failings of this week. How do you know that this God is serious about forgiving you in all of the sin and the rebellion that you have committed, and that you will commit? Well, Jesus knows we struggle, and so he gives us this table. And he gives us this as an eternal reminder to us. He knows that we need to hear his voice again to say, you're my beloved daughter, you're my beloved son. I have covered your sin. Come to me. Come and receive my grace. And so I'd like to ask the elders uh, to come forward, the officers to come forward uh, as we prepare to take this meal. Who is this meal for? It's for anyone who has claimed Christ, as their savior, who has repented of their sins, who are seeking repentance in his church. And if you're here today and you have done that and you're seeking repentance in in his church, then he offers this meal freely to you as a confirmation of of his love for you. If you haven't done that, I ask that you would let this pass and that you would pray, Lord God, if you're true, if this is real, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show yourself to be my father, to, that Jesus would be my savior? And then you could come to this table as a beloved son and daughter. We would, be, we would love to talk to anyone about that. But let's pray that God would strengthen us now through this meal. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are a God in this house. Lord, you give us your, this, this model of prayer uh, to remind us that we are first beloved children, that we have access to you at any time. And the way we know that, It's because, Lord Jesus, you went to the cross for us. That you bled and died for our sins. That your Father would become our Father. And so, God, we pray that you would strengthen us through this meal. That you would help us to live faithful to you. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name.